When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, hello and thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. And just a couple of things I'd like to ask you to consider. Firstly, my guests share their personal stories, which others may see differently. No one will see a situation the same. It's just human nature. Uh, secondly, my podcasts aren't suitable for children and some adults for that matter. So please consider if it's right for you and contact Lifeline or any other support service if you find yourself affected by my subject matter. Oh, and don't forget, my next show is at the State Library of Victoria on Saturday the 25th of June with undercover cop Keith Banks. I reckon you'll think twice about trusting anybody after listening to Keith. Uh, tickets are through Eventbrite. Thanks. I was so scared to say anything to anyone because I knew that that would be the end of life as I knew it. Today, Georgia tells us how the system can be improved. Well, it couldn't get much worse, could it, really? Uh, and the plea that the judge takes into account in sentencing her husband will leave you just lost for words like I am. <laughs> anyway, again, thanks for listening. You said, and we've sort of touched on this, but you said that many people had asked you why you didn't leave and why do you have a baby with him and, you know, so many other offensive and uneducated questions um, from people that clearly don't understand about coercive control can you tell us a bit about those conversations um, and how you felt when people asked that? And it just proves to me that we need, there's a lot of work we need to do about educating people about family violence and coercive control. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would I definitely agree that there is a lot of education that needs to be done. And some of the people closest to me have actually asked that question and ask the question or, you know, don't you feel guilty that one day you're going to have to explain all of this to your son and, you know, why did you want to bring a baby into the world with that person? And I think that it's something that is really hard to explain unless you've gone through Yeah, I imagine it would be, um, yeah. It's, I, I think I touched on it earlier that the, you just feel like there is no other option. You feel like... I, I never felt like I I had a choice. I never felt like there was any way to get out of it or that I 
could leave the relationship. I felt to an extent, I think a sense of guilt that he always blamed me for everything and he said, you know, that it was it was my fault and I felt a sense of guilt that I couldn't make the relationship work and it got to the point where I thought if I could give him a son then perhaps that would make a relationship work and that's how kind of messed up I guess you become in in that sort of scenario um but in terms of people asking the question um asking you know why I didn't leave asking what did I know about what he was doing it was just I think it it put a really big question mark over my head and who I was um and I like to yeah back then I was I'm nowhere near as strong as I am now. Uh, I think I had been sort of reduced to a very um, a, a very small version of myself. I had no yeah. self worth. Um, yeah. You'd so, been downtrodden for yeah, so long yeah. that you believed everything that he said. I did, and he created my reality um, to a very very high degree. He everything he told me was basically reality he would tell me you know the incident where he kicked me in the stomach he said oh well you attacked me first and I was just trying to protect myself and things like that and it becomes so twisted in your mind and you live it for so long that it's very hard to reframe that um and then getting that question from people after the fact is it's really it's really hard to answer and a lot of the trauma and the abuse like you know I can name five or six incidents but there were so many more than that that I've just blocked out yeah yeah Um, yeah which I'm told by my psychologist is pretty common. Um, yeah, so it's just one of those questions which just sort of puts you straight back to where you were and it makes you feel like a bit of a failure. And I think there's definitely different ways that people could ask that question or, you know, it, it it's probably more important to ask if I suspect that someone is in a position like you were, what can I do to help them? rather than why didn't you leave? I think that's probably more of an important question to ask. And what would you say to somebody that that might be in that position that you were in? Yeah, um, it's, it's, I'd say that it's really difficult to get people to talk, to feel safe enough to talk and to feel like I was so scared to say anything to anyone because I knew that that would be the end of life as I knew it. And yeah, it would be I, the circuit breaker, wouldn't it? Exactly. And I was so frightened of that. Um, but I think there was a few people in my life that I was really, really close to telling. And I think if it had have, like if it had have gone on much longer, I probably would have told them. But I think you just, just be open to listening. Um, always with everyone you know, just be really open to listening. Understand that everyone is going through something that you probably don't know about. Um, and just try not to judge as well because I faced a lot of judgment. I bet you did. Um, in those early days there was, yeah, a lot of judgment and that's probably another thing that's really hit hard is dealing with that judgment. So, yeah, I think empathy, empathy is always key. Um, just if, if you suspect it, ask as well. If you suspect that there might be something going on, ask. Because if I think if I think if someone had have said to me, "Is there something going on that you're not telling someone about? Is he hurting you?" I would have probably broken down and said, "Yes, yes, I, there is something going on, and I need to talk mm-hmm. to you about it." 
Yeah, and I think that's a really important message that you're um, uh, portraying there is that if you do think that somebody isn't, you know, if there's something going on, mm. there's no harm in asking. No. And that person, I've often thought about this with um, my PTSD, I thought if somebody would have said to me, are you okay? Mm-hmm. I, w- I know I would have brushed it off, but I would have gone home that night thinking, why is somebody asking me? Am yes. I, you know, like, so it yes. would get your mind uh, moving, you know. When it forces it gets- you to ask the question, are you okay? And, you know, Absolutely. sometimes yeah. the answer is probably no. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. It- it's interesting that you say that you only needed somebody to say, you know, you don't seem to be managing too well or something and you would have probably ended up in a ball of tears and telling them yeah that could have saved everything (laughs) well I think there was probably to be fair a few people who did ask me are you okay there was a few people who I did break down with and I said things aren't good um in the relationship but I never it's yeah it's really difficult and something I've thought about a lot what would it have taken for me to really open up um, you know what it would have, yeah, yeah, and that's true, but what it would have taken too is for somebody to say, are you okay, but then to listen. Mm. You know, yeah. um, it, it's easy for us to say now, but, you know, that could have been the circuit breaker that you needed. But yeah. anyway, look, we, we have I, to, I, I, you I know, live with our decisions, well. don't we? Yep. Yeah, and a few people have said as well, like in hindsight, um, now now that they reflect they think that there was probably a few indications that things weren't right um, in the relationship or that things weren't right with him. So, yeah. Mm. Hindsight. Um, what sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What sort of advice would you have to police who might be listening now and investigating mm. a child abuse matter and about to execute a warrant at somebody's house? Um. If there's other family involved, protect them as well Um, because I would assume that it's pretty common that people aren't going to stand by um, and willingly allow something like that to happen and them not to say anything. I think I I have heard cases where it, it is known about and not reported, but I would think that particularly in a case like mine, it might, it, if I had have known, I would have done something about it. So I think interview the family as well. Um, in, in my case, it would have been nice to be have been given a heads up so that I could have gotten earlier protection from him as well um, and just more information to protect my child. So as I said, I didn't know for a long time what the charges actually were. Um, so I was still for custody reasons and to ensure that I did everything right in the eyes of the family law court, allowing some visitation. Had I have known what the actual charges were and the likelihood of conviction, that wouldn't have happened. Um, So, yeah, probably just provide as much information as you can to the family and protect other children because, you know, he Mm. did have one on the way. So, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself too, the least that – the police could have done is maybe left a card to say, you know, could you give us a call or something. But mm-hmm. what about, so that's with the police, what about magistrates and uh, judges who might be listening, uh, like what, or court staff? 
anybody to do with the judiciary. What would you say to them about secondary victims like of a crime like uh, yourself? Uh, oh, that's a tough question, real. <laughs> I think I, I think you've probably I think you've probably answered it in a way that really I suppose and help me here, but I'm thinking in a court situation to uh, understand that people have all sorts of reasons as to why they don't report something and that they take their time. Uh, I, I wouldn't think that we would have to spell that out to a magistrate or a judge, but you know what, maybe mm. we do, Georgia. Yeah, so to be to be honest, what that magistrate said to me, a magistrate, sorry, said to me that if it was so severe, why hadn't I reported it earlier? And then to have to sit there and justify to him that he had claimed he had videos of me and I didn't feel like I could leave safely, I, I wouldn't think that in this day and age, given the amount of cases that we hear about domestic violence and they're all really awful. Um, coercive control is a pretty big um, discussion point at the moment as well and I wouldn't have thought Huge. in this day and age that I would have to go into as necessarily as much detail in order to prove or to justify why I needed help. Um, yeah. So, Georgia, I just thought we might finish off talking about some of the comments that were made by the judge at the plea and I thought we might, I'll read through them and we'll comment at the end of each one if that's okay with you. Sure. Okay, so the first one says, at the time of offending you were experiencing great turbulence in your marriage due to a number of circumstances. These included the fact that your wife did not get along with your mother and stepfather, which resulted in you ceasing contact with them. A reduction in your salary when you left the army for a career in personal training and a significant amount of debt acquired to buy a home, which was later sold at a significant loss. So what do you think about those comments? Um, so I think we've previously discussed um, the issues with his mother and stepfather and how they were impacting on our marriage and our relationship. Um, yeah, they definitely had a, an enormous impact on us. Um, but for it to be pointed out that that was solely my fault, that it was because your wife did not get along with your mother and stepfather was particularly difficult to read um, or to listen to because, yeah, as I said, I actually attended the sentencing um, and it was not not even close to being the truth of the matter, I guess. Um, it didn't account for the fact that he it was his decision to end the relationship with his mother and his stepfather. It wasn't mine um, or anything like that, yeah. So that was difficult to read. Um, the reduction in his salary was correct, so he did... Um, discharge from the, the Defence Force and begin a career in personal training. Um, it didn't note that he actually took 12 months off work in that time. He stopped working altogether, um, yeah, for, for a significant period of time and I was working full-time and providing for both of us. And But, but Georgia, that, that's his choice that to was, go to, yeah. to personal training. Exactly, that was his choice. Yep. He said he did it for my benefit. He said that... Uh, he couldn't sustain a career in the um, Defence Force long term if he wanted to have a family and that it wasn't going to work. But I never um, 
I don't think I ever requested that he leave the Defence Force uh, and I certainly didn't advocate for him pursuing a career in personal training. I um, was encouraging him to use his skills that he had developed um, while in the Defence Force and pursue a career in that aspect because I knew that it would um, probably provide him with longer-term uh, career growth um, and would be better for him long-term, yeah. Um, and that proved to be right. He lost his job. Um, he was made redundant during COVID. So that was another thing that he pointed to. Um, and then the final point there, which was the significant amount of debt acquired to buy a home, was um, a complete lie. So we had a significant deposit. We had probably about 30, 25 to 30% deposit for the home that we purchased. We'd been saving for a really long time. Uh, we also, I had saved two years worth of repayments against that mortgage in the offset account for when I went on maternity leave. There was two years worth of repayments in there to pay off the mortgage. Um, and the house was not sold at a significant loss. We actually made a moderate profit about, of about $10,000, but we'd only owned the home for about 12 months to the day by the time it was sold. So, um, it, yeah, we wouldn't have expected to make a significant profit, but um, there was, it was certainly not a significant loss. Mm. So reading those and hearing those in the sentencing and the fact that they were all, well, you know, that their loss on the house was definitely a lie and it could have easily been proved. All it take, would have taken was, a, you know, a simple Google search and the um, purchase and sale price are actually available. So for that to be allowed as a defence was pretty disappointing. Uh, yeah, I imagine I couldn't imagine sitting and listening to that when you know that it wasn't at a, a, lot, a whole lot of things. And I also think it seems to me a bit of victim blaming that um, the fact that your wife didn't get along with your mother and stepfather, but neither did he. Like no. even if you didn't, I don't think that's worth. Well, I wouldn't imagine why that would be even relevant. Um, yeah. yeah, I found and, yeah and I found many, many of these comments particularly shocking. Given the charges that he was facing, how they were even relevant, uh, I couldn't really get my head around. Yeah, yeah, and I I think I also like a lot of people suffer turbulence in their life or in their marriage, uh, and personally, I find it incredulous that was it would have, it was even stated. But let's go on to uh, the second point. So again, this is the judge, his comments. Mm -hmm. It was posited that these stresses drove you to find solace in your phone by talking to strangers and that this activity provided validation compensating for pers the personality traits which had stemmed from a deprived childhood. Yes. Right. Your comments on that? Um, I, I mean, I can't really argue with this one it seems um it seems shocking that it's used as an excuse that you know a lot of people as you just mentioned have difficulties in their life but then that's not really an excuse for seeking validation especially not from the people he was seeking validation from um yeah and I, I just find it again a weird thing to comment on I don't I don't know that it's necessarily, um, and uh, yeah, again, I don't think it's an excuse. There was plenty of other people. He had numerous 
um, supportive friends around him. He had um, supportive family and I would like to have thought that I was um, a supportive partner and that he could have spoken to me about it, the things he was going through as well. So, again, yeah, it's disappointing that it was mentioned, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think um, to m- myself, I think how many other people would have uh, had a deprived childhood but mm-hmm. they don't seek solace in grooming young children on no. the internet? No. You know, so. And it's not, again, it's one of those things which just I, d- I don't know that it necessarily needs to be raised as a point. And I think the, the, the thing that I can't get my head around is that these were all raised as points to why he was given, I suppose, a lenient sentence, um, which is, yeah, yeah. disappointing. And, and as you said, it, it's not like he didn't have any mates to talk to. I mean, he had a lot I of don't friends understand. around him, yeah. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like what about his mates and his friends? He had, he would have had people to talk to. He had a what? Uh, I mean, okay, he didn't speak to you about mm-hmm. it, which he could have, mm-hmm. uh, or he could have spoken to you about his troubles or the marriage problems or whatever it be, mm. but um, he chose to find solace in grooming young children. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, you know, he was also, doesn't stick with him. He was also offered counselling through the Defence Force, which he refused to take up. I tried to get him to go to individual psycho, um, psychology sessions, which he refused to go to, and I also tried to get us to both go to marriage counselling. Uh, he attended one session and then refused to go to any more sessions. So... Yeah, because he'd think that, you know, in a fairly typical uh, situation, I think he would think that there was nothing wrong with him. You're the one that exactly. needs to go to the side. That was, what yeah. he, that was yeah. word for word what he told me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard too many of them, Georgia. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't, I can't tell them around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, at the third one, the uh, judge said, As a result of your offending, your marriage has broken down and you've been through divorce proceedings. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was actually stated. Yes. And really? Again, that was stated as a, I can't remember the exact terminology that the judge used, but it was stated as a, like a punishment that he had received. Like a, yeah. So it was stated that he had basically been, that he had suffered sufficient punish, punishment because his marriage had broken down. Yeah. Um, mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Boo-hoo. Really? I'm not, okay, sure. I'm not four. sure who would have stayed married to him, but that's, yeah, <laughs> that's another thing. Yeah, well, yeah, mm. that's true. Okay, number four. Uh, your wife was pregnant at the time of the separation and your son was born uh, in February of this year, of that particular year. What's that, 20? 20- One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 2020? Correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's, I continue on. With the exception of five visits within the first two months of your son's life, you've been unable to connect with him. Yes. And, again, to suggest that he should have connection with a child given he was on charge or had been convicted of charges of child grooming, I'm not sure, again, how that's relevant. But also I think, well, whose fault is that? Well, yes. he can he can be convicted of child grooming, and then he expects to have visit visitation rights mm. with a child. I mean, I know it's his, but it happens. Yeah. It's not un well. Yeah, but I'm getting myself. Um, I'm digging myself a hole here. <laughs> but people do offend against their own children. Yes, um, exactly. And it was you know, it was a risk in my in my eyes. I it was a risk to me that I would never have left him. Uh, unsupervised with my son but it was obviously a risk um not only you know that that the child grooming but also the violence that I had suffered it was all a risk so um, oh yeah and the fact that for a significant amount of time I didn't even know what the charges he was facing actually were Mm. yeah yeah and also like I'm thinking when you were pregnant he kicked you Mm -hmm. when you were pregnant he did all these things so you're right uh, and you had no idea of what he was doing. So how could you give your son over to him for access mm. and be 100% certain that your son was safe? You couldn't be, could you? No, and at the state of our relationship at that point, I wouldn't have even thought he would give my son back if he had access. So, you know, I, I had reported that incident to the police where he actually tried to take my son off me. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Uh, personally I think he's lucky he got five visits but anyway Mm. it wasn't even five Uh, visits but that's it was probably two I think oh okay yeah Mm. so again that was false Mm. yep uh number five the judge says there are other aspects of your offending which place it toward the lower end of the scale of offending being that your contact was not overtly sexual or explicit in any way and the age of each imaginary victim was at the less serious end of the range. Interestingly, though, he did actually attempt to meet up with one of the girls. Um, So, I mean, they were undercover police officers, but he did the, the day that the house was raided and he was arrested, I believe, within the days prior he had been arranging to meet up with one of the girls. So he was intending to um, for it to not be, you know, the, the contact to be physical 
rather than just virtual. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I feel that, that the point is being lost or glossed over there because, to me, um, there's no doubt that if he'd had the opportunity, it would have almost certainly um, turned, well, in my experience, it would have turned physical. Mm-hmm. The fact that the young girls were teenagers that and forgetting they were undercover cops because nobody knew that. Yes, um, yeah. But let's assume uh, that he's... Um, not being truthful about, and I think that's probably right, that he didn't know they were undercover cops. No, there's no um, way he would have known. No, no. <laughs> but anyway, but the fact that the young girls that he was grooming were teenagers, that shouldn't even come into it. They are children in the eyes of the law. Well, that would make sense to me, yes, that a child is a child um, given the definition within the law. It doesn't matter mm. whether they're, mm. you know, 5 or 16, they're still children, so... Yeah, and, and grooming is all about just very, very slowly, you know, getting them high what you're doing today and then, you know, getting them to, I don't know, take off their their cardigan or their top or their mm-hmm. puffer and jacket or whatever. It states within there that it wasn't overtly sexual or explicit. However, I know that there have been photos exchanged, um, so I'm not sure how that's not... And, and he'd been asking for specific photos of the girls or I guess their body parts. So I don't know how that constitutes not being overtly sexual. Um, no, in, in mm. fact, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm thinking to myself, I am sure that I read somewhere that it was um, sexual because he was getting them to send, he was asking them to send uh, photos of themselves in different poses, etc. And if that's not sexual, mm-hmm. uh, the the comments that this judge is making, I, I and look, I've got to admit, I wasn't there, and, and I, I just think, on the face of it, reading these these um, uh, boo hoo sort of um, you know uh, stories about why somebody is offended. I'm actually offended. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I think what the judge is saying. And I think, as I, I mentioned, you know, the reaction to the article that was written about all of this as well was very much on the of the same vein that it was just how does this even constitute an excuse to what he did though, um, and how does you know how does that mean that he gets a more lenient sentence just because of this? Yeah, uh, and to actually think that somebody is going to take that into account. I just Mm -hmm. can't imagine. Anyway, the sixth and final one that I've got, Georgia, Mm -hmm. uh, number six, you are also unlikely to return to work as a personal trainer due to the requirement to pass a working for children check. You have also suffered the financial loss that I referred to in relation to the sale of the house. Yeah. And, again, they pointed to this as... um, a means of punishment. They basically said that given everything he had, quotation marks, suffered with the loss of his marriage, the loss of his house and everything, that they deemed that that was uh, sufficient punishment to act as a deterrent to him going forward. And, like, to me, um, he, he can't work with children because of his offending. Mm. Uh, he could never be trusted around children again in my view yeah 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, DHHS actually got involved to ensure that any children he could potentially be around were safe and protected. So it's not, uh, yeah, again, I, I just don't find it particularly relevant that he can't work because he can't get a working with children. It's like he's a registered sex offender. So, mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yes, well, Georgia, so many Oh, there's so many questions, so many comments, and I've probably made far too many <laughs> and shown my colours a bit, but I just get sick to death of hearing these uh, tales of woe after they've been found uh, guilty, they've been convicted, and, it, you know, sometimes I just shake, well, I shake my head a lot. Yeah. Oh, dear. Anyway, look, Georgia, again, thank you for being so open and honest. Um, I'm sure it isn't easy, but I, I know that people listening to this will um, will hopefully find some strength in their own difficulties to think, well, if Georgia can get through that, I can get through this. Thanks, Narelle. And again, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it uh, and to share it and hopefully someone listening might find something in my story that helps them. I have no doubt they will, Georgia. Mm, Good luck you. with everything. Thanks okay. so much. Thanks for your time, Georgia. Bye. Bye. This is just a few thoughts that I'd like to add about Georgia's podcast and her dealings with Victoria Police and the judiciary. The four main Victoria Police functions in responding to family violence are, one, to provide safety and support to those involved. Two, to investigate and identify criminal offences. Three, to present offenders before the court. And four, to assist in minimising family violence in the community. Not one of these functions was addressed when Georgia attended at the police station for help. Victoria Police and every other state police force need to do more in training members with the signs and behaviours which can be exhibited by a victim of domestic and family violence, some of which are, or many, which are invisible, and their responsibilities with those who come to the police for assistance and or advice. It's imperative for police to understand that often walking into a police station to seek assistance and or advice is possibly quite dangerous for the victim and the last resort for many who are caught in that violence web. Victims are often expected to manage the situation themselves and I've seen it too many times to count as they'll attend at a police station where police will tell them to apply for an intervention order themselves, which is exactly what happened with Georgia. And look, I understand that there's a fair bit of paperwork or a lot of paperwork involved in domestic and family violence matters, including taking out intervention orders. And maybe the police need to find a smarter and more proficient way than spending hours filling out paperwork, which to me seemed littered with repetitive questions when I was doing this paperwork in my career from, say, 1987 to about 2012. Police need to capture as much information as possible about the situation, yes, but 
if that information tends to deter police from doing a proper job with a domestic violence, well, it needs to be fixed. It needs to be streamlined. The reason Victoria Police are required to take out intervention orders rather than the victim is that the victim can often be swayed by the perpetrator to withdraw the order using threats if they don't comply. The perpetrator will often use their coercive control techniques to persuade the victim into withdrawing the order, but but if the police take it out, that would only happen in exceptional circumstances. Ultimately, if police act on the information early, the situation may not escalate further as it often does. Although there's no doubt that the perpetrator would find it annoying and they'd probably be angry or upset by police intervention, yes. But often it's that initial action that can be the circuit breaker for so many relationship issues. Police are required to seek an intervention order on behalf of another if they believe the person needs protection, even if the person doesn't want police to make that order. Often, police will view it as an inconvenience because they see it as there's no actual violence, often no law has been broken, and many would rather be chasing crooks and stolen cars. But police work is about so much more than that. It's about keeping the community safe, and that includes in our own homes, as sad as that is. But often, the family home is where some people are more at risk. Isn't that sad? In your own home, under your own roof. Hard to get my head around that. Um, Many don't report abuse because they fear the perpetrator. They fear the legal process and or not being believed, which is exactly what happened to Georgia. In saying that, I'm aware that there's been a shift in Victoria Police in investigating and responding to family violence matters. For instance, there are now dedicated family violence units in each region, which is primarily detectives who are investigating reported incidents, family violence incidents. There's also uh, dedicated specialist family violence courts where both victims and perpetrators are legally represented. Yes, it's a step in the right direction and will only increase in the number of members assigned to the unit as the years and months go by. But for these units to work, the police who become aware or are advised of a victim's concerns for their welfare and or safety are required to fill out forms which capture much of the information which has brought the victim to the police, whether it be by a police visit or them actually visiting a police station in person. Family violence isn't just about assaults and threats. It encompasses emotional, psychological or economic abuse or behaviour that's threatening, coercive or controlling in any other form or any other ways of controlling or dominating the family member or other family member. It can cover where a child hears or even witnesses or is exposed to the effects of the behaviour that I just mentioned. I'm sure and I hope things have changed since I left. Um, But Around the time that I left in 2012, a family violence risk assessment and management report, quote, must be submitted, one, for all forms of abuse, including homicides, assaults, verbal, emotional, economic abuse and damage to property. Two, 
any family incident attended by police or reported to police at any location, including those reported in person to a police station, regardless of the police response. Three, a verbal dispute between family members where no criminal offence is identified, however, police assistance is sought. And then there's the response by the courts to family violence. The court makes a decision about a family violence intervention order on what we call the balance of probabilities rather than a belief on reasonable grounds. A belief on reasonable grounds is the highest standard of proof in our legal system and the balance of probabilities is under that. So that standard of proof, as in the balance of probabilities, it's pretty easy to prove. So and maybe we could say that it's more probable than not. That's, you know, maybe uh, what it means as well. Or it might help you understand what it means. But the fact that Georgia felt like she was being badgered in the, in the uh, witness box is an indictment on our system. She should have felt safe. She should have felt uh, like she was being heard. She was given an opportunity to tell her story and she should have felt that she was being believed. And I don't believe any of those points existed for Georgia. Just the way that the magistrate questioned how long that she had, um, you know, what did he say? He said something about it had taken her two or three weeks uh, to come forward about some of the incidents she uh, spoke about. Uh, but also, didn't she talk about um, wanting particular um, oh, what, sanctions put in place or orders put in place so that her ex-husband couldn't go near, say, the childminding centre? And, and the court didn't even entertain that. I thought Georgia had such a legitimate reason for that because he had previously tried to take his little boy from the pram which Georgia was holding. Now, either I'm missing something or I just we just seem to have something wrong. There's something wrong with the system. Police must make and sign an application for a family violence intervention order where the safety, welfare or property of a family member appears to be endangered by another. It isn't always necessary to have the agreement of the affected family member who may be fearful of the consequences of the initiating action, and that happens a lot. In George's case, there was also the concern about the safety and or welfare of her unborn child when she first went to the police at 20 weeks pregnant. The day after, I think, or it wasn't long after, her ex-husband had been arrested. I doubt that the safety and or welfare of her unborn child was even considered, and it should have been. There are numerous ways a person can be protected by the police. For instance, police can, yes, take out a family violence intervention order. That's during any normal weekday. Uh, outside of normal hours and maybe weekends, 
They can take out a family violence safety notice. They can also take out an interim intervention order and that's sort where police are required to take immediate action and it's generally used where the perpetrator isn't present at the scene but there's concerns and safety for the victim. Uh, They can also take out a complaint and warrant and that's basically uh, to start the process of an intervention order immediately. And it's basically uh, at sort where police are required to take immediate action. Police can also take out a complaint and summons, and that's sort where the aggrieved family member isn't in immediate danger or um, urgent action isn't required and there's no immediate threat to uh, the, the property of the aggrieved family member. Unfortunately, we're still having issues with police not taking reports of family violence or fear, etc. seriously. From what Georgia has described, she was in genuine fear for her safety and that of her baby after her ex-husband was released on bail and when she attended her local police station for help, they suggested she attend the court herself and apply for a family violence intervention order. If police can't protect a young, fearful and scared 20-week pregnant woman from her controlling, abusive husband, we haven't come very far at all. And that goes for the court system as well. Thank you and have a good week. It's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A-T-R-E-O-N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.